You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for being here. We greatly appreciate you listening. And we have a returning guest, one of my uh, favorite people to talk to about economic issues. His name is Alexander Salter, and he's an associate professor in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University and a research fellow at the Free Market Institute and a senior fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also a Young Voices contributor. Thank you so much for coming back, Alexander. I really appreciate having you coming back on. Great to be back, Chris. So I, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. We usually have you on to talk about inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is November of 2022. I've seen little down, little tiny downward trends in the inflation. Uh, and uh, we've had some folks like Jack Salmon on recently who have said that 2023 is going to be a little bit rough. What is What do you see uh, the economic future for the next year or two looking like? I'm not predicting a crisis. I would say that our future is more going to be sclerosis. Things aren't great. There's probably going to be a recession in 2023. It's not going to be huge. Labor markets are not going to bottom out, but neither is the American economy going to produce anywhere near its potential. We have the ability to make lots more wealth than this. And it's kind of, it's very disappointing actually that we're not actually operating at the frontiers of economic productivity. All right. So the article that caught my eye uh, was in The Spectator, The American Spectator, and it's titled On Gas Prices, Simple, Simple Economics, Trump's Biden's Partisan Agenda. And this is something that Joe Biden keeps uh, repeating. I, it, you see it in the diesel crisis, for instance. We have 25 days of diesel supply and it's an a- absolute outrage. And he, as you lead in your article, lambast the oil and gas companies as war profiteers and threaten a windfall tax on their record profits. I keep hearing that the the high gas prices are due to greed, corporate greed. Is that true? No. What? I'm guessing you want me to elaborate on yeah, that. Yeah, please, Why? because I need to argue well, with my liberal Facebook friend and I need facts. It all just comes down to supply and demand. If you look what's going on, oil is an example of a good that we call is an elastic demand in the economics profession, which is just a jargony phrase for when prices go up, consumers are going to reduce their consumption by not by that much. If prices go up by 10%, quantity demanded will fall by, say, 8%. Notice that the price hike effect outweighs the quantity effect. So that means that when oil prices go up, it's frequently the case that oil producing companies actually make more total revenue. They're selling less oil, but they're getting such a better price on each unit produced and sold that on net, the price effect dominates the quantity effect and they make more money. So if you want to understand what's going on in oil markets, it's the interaction of the administration's policies, which is a choice, global factors beyond the administration's control. Those factors are basically making producing and distributing oil more difficult, pushing up prices, reducing quantities, and ultimately reduce, uh, resulting in higher revenue intake for big oil companies. There's nothing necessarily nefarious about it. This is just how markets work when a good is demanded that consumers don't have a lot of substitutes for, right? What substitutes are there for fossil fuels? There are substitutes, but none of them are particularly good which is why consumers don't scale back all that much when prices go up. Yeah, that makes total sense that people do use a little bit less, but 
they don't really, and, and then the price of oil goes up, so the amount of profits go up. And isn't it also the case that you, you mentioned that part of it is the administration's policy? I know I've talked to other folks on the program here who say that there's less permits, so they have less places they can spend their money, so they have more money, essentially, because they're not able to get permits to go explore and drill. Um, what are some ways that the Biden administration's energy policy is also leading to these record profits? From day one, the Biden administration has not been friendly to the American energy sector. On day one, he signed that executive order halting the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. Ever since then, it's been a stream of executive orders, even in legislation like the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which certainly is a contender for the most inaccurately named bill in our nation's history. There's user fees, there's extra costs, there's all these regulatory actions that basically drive up the cost of producing oil. Combine that with the administration's rhetoric and broader stated goal to transitioning to a green economy, oil companies are looking at that and thinking any investments that we make to expand capacity are not going to be safe in terms of generating a rate of return. They're going to be taxed away. They're going to be regulated away. Why would we make those investments if we don't think that our property rights to the resulting revenue are secure? Oil companies, unfortunately, are responding rationally to the situation. So to the extent that there's a problem, it's not with the oil companies, it's with the policy that's disincentivizing them from stepping up production at this crucial time. Oil prices right now are something like 40% higher than they were in January of 2021 after adjusted for inflation. Based on the old prior to the COVID trend, production of oil domestically should be something like 2 million more, barrel, um, 2 million more barrels of oil per day. What happened to the trend? Where did that production go? That can be plausibly explained mostly by the administration's bad policies, but also, yes, it needs to be said, some geopolitical factors beyond the administration's control. But yeah, the Biden administration can and should be doing better on this. All right. So we, I think we've made you president before, uh, and I'm all for it. Or you're, you're put in charge and you're in Joe Biden's place. What are some things that you do in the short term and long term that would lower gas prices? Ease up on leases get back to drilling, get back to producing, stop the regulatory overhaul that's basically making it increasingly hard to invest in capacity. There's a lot of things happening on several fronts. Another thing that we could talk about is that for oil companies, especially intermediate sized producers, not necessarily the behemoths, but the intermediate sized guys who are vital to the fossil fuels production chain, the supply chain, their cost of capital is going up immensely. Why? Various environmental, social, and governance goals that are being pushed by securities uh, regulators and financial market regulators that are making accessing capital increasingly expensive for fossil fuel producers. Because there is a push to steer capital away from disfavored industries like fossil fuels to green energy and more politically favored industries. I, I admire the environmental mindset and the stewardship conservationist mindset behind these policies. But in terms of what we're actually getting right now, we're laying economic burdens on families that are least capable of bearing them. Energy is an important input in just about everybody's monthly bill. Everybody's got to put gas in their car. It's going to be winter. Everybody's got to heat their home unless you live in Southern California, in which case, you know, more power to you. But for everybody else, you got to heat your home in the winter. That's going to be increasingly expensive. When those prices go up, Families that live on smaller budgets experience more pain because those cost increases eat up a larger share of their smaller budget. 
So if I'm in the Biden administration, I have to tell the president, Mr. President, the thing that we should be doing right now is getting out of the way. We don't need to give them a nudge. We just need to stop doing counterproductive things. Give a public address that says right now, based on domestic considerations, based on geostrategic considerations, international relations, producing more fossil fuels, producing more oils makes sense. It's in the national interest. And it would be the stated policy of the administration that they're going to stop holding that up. Undo the costly executive orders. Get back to permitting. We need more of that if we're actually going to get prices down and quantities up. There's no other way. I think the the general pushback to that is, you know, I believe climate change is real. I think we can see the evidence that something's going on. Um, And I'm not all saying we're going to die in 25 years by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the people that would push back on you go, this is a dire emergency. We have to transition now. And if we don't cause some economic pain when it comes to fossil fuels and plastic production and all of these different things, we're never going to get to a more sustainable path. What would you say to that? I think that climate change is real. And I think that we can have an intelligent debate over what sorts of federal policies are necessary to reduce the externality, another economics jargony word for basically costs that we're imposing on other people, reduce the externality associated with carbon. But what we're doing right now is completely counterproductive. First of all, if we want to make a serious dent in global warming, it's not enough for the United States to get on board, right? In per capita terms, we're actually emitting less now than we did in 1992, if you can believe it. We are not the big polluters. China and India, which are rapidly industrializing, are the big polluters. And they're not going to get on board with the strategy of going green by 2030 or 2050 or whatever. You would be asking those nations to forsake their own industrialization, which is just not going to happen. If the United States acts unilaterally and completely eliminated fossil fuels, suppose that we were actually able to do that without affecting American living standards, which is a pipe dream, but just suppose that we actually did that. On the most charitable assumptions possible, based on the global climate models, that would be responsible for something like six-tenths of a degree Celsius over several generations. That's not that much with res- uh, compared to the trend warming that people are projecting. Don't get me wrong, it's non-trivial. But this idea that the United States can and should unilaterally fight cl- climate change and be solely responsible for bearing those costs doesn't make sense. So we can stop hampering fossil fuel production at the same time as making alternative energies more attractive. Increase tax credits for inter- for alternative energies, right? Make those research and developments tax write-offs. If you need to, subsidize. I understand the argument that what you have to do is get the price point on renewables comparable to the price point on fossil fuels. And even then you have a problem because renewables are not as reliable as fossil fuels. It's not always sunny, so photovoltaics aren't great. It's not always windy, so windmills don't work great and they look nasty and interfere with uh, wildlife migration patterns besides. So there is no silver bullet. We're probably going to need, if we're serious about taking on these environmental challenges, a spectrum of policies. But those policies don't have to include laying economic burdens on one of our most important sectors. And as long as we're talking about broader social costs, there's also broader social costs to having to go back to Venezuela, to Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, and begging for them to step up production. Those are real costs dealing with tyrannical regimes, oppressive regimes that produce oil, by the way, dirtier than we do. The idea is if we can get our oil from them, right, at least we don't have the domestic optics problem of, oh, we're producing oil here, which is bad. So we'll just buy it, right, because they don't vote for us. Which is sort of an insane thing to watch Joe Biden go to Venezuela and basically beg them and 
uh, like the uh, when he was vice president, they were evil on earth. <laughs> so yeah, that's a uh, very he was right. Uh, yeah, he, exactly. Um, same as Saudi Arabia. That's that's one of the problems with. Uh, I read a fascinating article on one of the Norwegian countries that I think it is Norway that became like a massive oil producer and one of the poorest countries on earth. And it was an article on the dangers of being a petrol state and how they're all a mess because they rise and fall based on the, the, the price of oil, except for Norway, which now basically is given like $200,000 to every citizen because of their wealth. So, Oh, if only, if only we could be in Alaska or Norway, Alex, um, fishes. Right, exactly. But here we are. Um, one of the ideas that Joe Biden is floating is taxing the profits of oil companies. Uh, Mr. Neil Bortz, many, many years ago, the first person where I ever heard the term libertarian, taught me a very simple lesson about business taxes. And that is, I pay the business taxes as a consumer, not the business. Uh, so... Talk about the the insanity of taxing oil companies for their profits and what that would do to the price of gasoline. One thing that pretty much all economists will admit, and this is public finance 101. This is not a left versus right thing. This is foundational to the discipline. The person responsible for paying a tax legally is very rarely the person who actually pays the tax economically. When we talk about the legal burden of a tax, we mean who has to actually write a check to Uncle Sam. But when we talk about the economic burden of the tax, we mean the person whose welfare in terms of gains from trade falls more. Think back to the supply and demand analysis we talked about in oil markets. Consumers are not very sensitive to price changes. Producers, in contrast, are very sensitive to price changes because there is a global market for oil and they don't have to sell here. They could sell somewhere else, right? So when you try and tax suppliers, suppliers are actually going to have a pretty easy time passing off most of those tax burdens onto consumers. Precisely because consumers are not sensitive to price changes, they're the ones who are going to stick around in the market and take it on the chin, so to speak. So this is one of the most important things that we talk about when we try and teach economics to 18 to 22-year-olds every year. Don't think that just because the law says the oil companies have to pay the tax, they have to write the check, that they're the people actually sacrificing resources. In terms of higher, uh, higher prices and lower quantities, it would be consumers that bear the brunt of the burden. So you wouldn't just be taxing a windfall tax. by the, You wouldn't be taxing windfall profits. You would also at the same time be disincentivizing future production. So short run, you would be hurting consumers rather than the big bad corporations that you're trying to go after. And longer term, you're creating really terrible incentives to actually ratchet up quantities, to actually get back to production that can make us competitive again. This is a losing proposition all around. And I can't imagine that the administration would actually want to go through with it. I have to hope that this is just for show. <laughs> oh, my sweet Alex. <laughs> what a what a nice boy you are. Yes. Uh, Fingers crossed, right? All right. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um you you mentioned educating students, and you're a, a professor at Texas Tech. I imagine you live in Texas, correct? I do live in Texas. I live in the great city of Lubbock, the western part of the state. And you've written an article in the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, Don't Fear the Californians Coming to Texas. <sighs> just like Joe Biden not passing taxes, are you just being naive about all these Californians coming into Texas? I mean, look at what they're doing to Arizona and Texas. It might be a purple state. 
I don't know if I would trust all of these people from blue states moving into red states. Brian Nichols moved from Philadelphia here to Newcastle, Indiana, and we've got to watch on him. We're, we're keeping an eye on him, for instance, because we don't want him to turn the state liberal. Am I wrong? I think the phrase that I used in my article to, uh, to illustrate that position is we better think twice before we let him in and think three times before we let him vote. Amen. Now, as it turns out, when you actually look at the political preferences of the people who are moving, we really don't have anything to worry about because the Californians who are coming to Texas are not the typical blue state Californian. They're people who are getting out of California because they're sick and tired of California. They're tired of the nanny state. They're tired of sclerotic government. They're tired of the high cost of living. They're coming to Texas and voting for things like free enterprise and limited government in much larger proportions than native Texans. So if you care about freedom, this is actually a good thing. And what I do in the article is I use the emigration from California to Texas as a paradigm of global immigration, basically saying the same story about what's happening from California to Texas also explains the kind of immigrants who are leaving, for example, the global South and coming to the United States. These are not people who are coming here to go on the dole. These are not people who are coming here so they can vote to turn this country into the countries that they're leaving. They want the American dream. They want the government off their backs. They want the government to enforce the rule of law and make sure that markets work well. They want the ability to produce, to form families, to worship, to do all the things we want good Americans to do. They're some of the greatest contributors to American civic culture. And if we care about freedom, one of the best things that we can do is find ways to welcome more immigrants. The more, the better. I understand that that's going to mean changing the political system, changing uh, how we handle the border, right? Because what's going on at the border right now is a humanitarian crisis and does need to be dealt with. I'm interested in looking for political solutions whereby a majority of American citizens can get on board with the idea of embracing a system that allows us to admit more immigrants who are coming here looking for a better life. Um, t- talk to me about the border, because I'm here in Indianapolis, all right? And, I mean, I, you know, if I turn on Fox News, they're always screaming about the border, right? Like, I know this, uh, the head of CBP just got uh, canned because he wasn't doing a great job. Um but you're a lot closer to the border. Uh, is this typical pre-election rhetoric from Republicans that there's a mass crisis at the border and we need to because this works for them? Or is it just sort of average right now? Like, Give me some perspective. There is disorder at the border. In terms of number of people who are coming over, we estimate that it's millions upon millions of higher than usual. We have much higher rates of contact and an absolute number of contacts between border officials and illegal immigrants. So there is something going on. The question is, what is going on and what should we do about it? I think that the ultimate problem is bad laws on the books coupled with weak enforcement that creates an institutional mismatch that actually creates an environment conducive to the flourishing of criminal enterprises. So what we're really worried about is human trafficking. We're worried about the drug cartels. If you have rules that make it very difficult, at least on paper, to get across into this country legally, and at the same time, they're sporadically and weakly enforced, you're basically saying it's open season for organizations that have a comparative advantage at avoiding the law for profits, namely criminals, to basically say, we're going to facilitate cross-border traffic for reasons that profit us but damage these border communities. 
You could fix that. You could fix that by giving increased federal resources to the border protection agencies so that we could process and make sure that all these people are coming across in an orderly fashion. But keep in mind, the goal of doing that is not to reduce immigration. The goal of that is to make it safe to have much higher immigration, but you need the administrative capacity to actually get these people in in an orderly fashion so that they're not harming themselves and others. Yeah, that's one thing that I guess I've never understood from conservatives. You don't want to bring in the pro-family, pro-life, pro-Catholic, entrepreneurial folks from south of the border who are fleeing the drug war that generally Republicans have driven. Like so it's I agree with you on on increasing the amount of immigration. I can see how people fear, you know, right now the two biggest issues in the election, well, other than abortion, were crime and the the economic situation. So if you're letting a lot of people into the country, you know, aren't they going to take jobs that, um, you know, Native Americans might need? And aren't they going to increase crime like you're letting immigrants in? Don't they produce more criminal activity? We actually have pretty good data on this. Because when Texas officials make arrests, we actually track the immigration status of the offender if, in fact, they're an immigrant. So based on reasonable projections about how many illegal immigrants there are in the country, illegal immigrants actually commit crimes at significantly lower rates than native Texans. The most lawful group is lawful immigrants. Next behind them is illegal immigrants, ruling out the obvious illegal moving itself, which is technically a crime, but that doesn't count, right? The first rule of tautology club is the first rule of tautology club. We're debating whether this should be a crime in the first place. Right. So it's law-abiding immigrants, the illegal immigrants, and then native Texans actually commit crimes at higher rates. In terms of the job situation, what decades of empirical studies on labor markets have shown us is that immigrant labor and native labor are complements rather than substitutes. Hmm. And the way to think about this is, yes, when immigrants come in, they're expanding the labor supply. And all else being equal, a higher labor supply lowers wages. But they're also demanders of goods and services. More goods and services demand means that labor is worth more because it can produce more worthwhile goods and services, which tends to boost wages. When you really get into the data, what we show, what we see, is that the kinds of jobs that illegal immigrants take, they're competing mostly with prior rounds of illegal immigrants, the vast majority of native U.S. workers are just not in that job market. They're taking other kinds of jobs, especially if they're high school graduates. So I see this as a situation where we can actually afford to welcome more immigrants in total to further facilitate a kind of division of labor that's going to make household wages even higher. We're actually sacrificing massive economic benefits by keeping our labor pool in the aggregate smaller, as well as by admitting immigrants who could fill those jobs I hate to use the cliched phrase, but it really is the jobs that Americans won't do. That is actually a thing that we observe in the data. And so we need to be finding ways to get the most out of our labor force, which means we need the most not uh, we need not just a big labor force to produce more stuff in general, but we need it to fit together like pieces of a puzzle. Immigrant labor can and does complement native labor. We should want more of it. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised at the amount of the economic impact if we were to kick the dreamers out. Uh, you know, the kids who were basically here, quote unquote, illegally, but had grown up here since they were very small and were culturally American, essentially, and had they are Americans, but they didn't have legal status. And the amount of economic damage to the United States that kicking out like, I forget the number, was it 20,000 people? 
would have was significant. It was in the billions. And so, so more population generally means more economic growth because you've got more people here working, paying taxes, buying things, correct? Absolutely. When we really focus on it, though, what we want to talk about is not just economic growth in general, but we want to talk about income per person. Because if we're admitting a bunch of people and those people are producing more, you have more stuff that's being produced, but then you have more people consuming what's produced. So per capita, incomes aren't actually going up. We want to find out what's happening in terms of GDP per capita, income per head, per person. And it turns out, yeah, larger populations are actually better for income per person. Because when you have a larger labor force, you get additional benefits from specialization and the division of labor. You get that puzzle fitting effect that we talked about just a minute ago. The workers that are in the labor force fit better together and complement each other, making everybody more productive. Also, at the end of the day, the only thing that results in economic growth in the long run is ideas, technological innovation. More people means more brains means more ideas. That's where it ultimately comes from. People are not a curse to the economy. People are a blessing to the economy. We're nowhere near the quote-unquote carrying capacity of the population. We have plenty of space, plenty of room. We can and should admit more people. And we couldn't, can and should be having more babies, frankly. But that's a simple conversation. Yeah, well, I'm doing my best. Um, <laughs> really, what I'm hearing you say is you just want more people using welfare. Because that's all I, I've heard is immigrants use welfare. Is that true? Immigrants do use welfare, just like Native Americans. The question is, what are the costs of servicing them with welfare? It seems like an intuitive story, right? Immigrants come here. They're not acculturated. They don't speak the language. They're going to need some help. So they're going to disproportionately generate, uh, consume, sorry, disproportionately consume public resources. Again, not if you look at the numbers. The welfare cost of servicing immigrants is, again, slightly lower than the welfare cost of servicing Americans who were born here. So in terms of the fiscal effects of immigration, most studies basically find it's a wash. Yes, they consume more public services, but they're also generating economic activity that stock the fisc in the form of paying tax revenue. So if you're concerned with public finances as a separate consideration, it really doesn't seem you think it really doesn't seem that you have anything to worry about because that particular effect washes out. So when you talk about sum up everything that we've mentioned before, less crime, right? more economic productivity, and it's a wash on public services. So you have two clear benefits, and on the third one, at least it's not a cost. I'll take two out of three. Absolutely. All right, Alex Salter, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you and learn more? Absolutely. Yeah, I have a website, www.awsalter.com. All of my academic writings and all of my popular op-eds are available there. Uh, I am on Facebook, you can find me on Facebook, so I'm uh, I'm off right now until after Christmas, but I'll be back on, you know, when the when the new year comes around. Uh, I regularly publish in places like uh, the Hill National Review, and so I throw all my articles up there, and I'm I'm happy to share those with anybody who wants them. I love hearing from readers, so please shoot me an email. I'd and you're talk to you. you're working on a, a couple books, right? That's right. So I had my first book published last year, which is about monetary policy. It's called Money and the Rule of Law by Cambridge University Press. Uh, the great thing about that is we were able to convince Cambridge to publish a low price paperback edition. Mm. I think the paperback edition is something like $28. So we, uh, we actually have a pretty good market for that book. And that book basically makes the argument, look, as long as we have a central bank, and we can talk about whether we should, 
But as long as we have the Fed, the Fed needs to have its hands bound very tightly with a specific rule. We can't just have this discretionary, technocratic, picking and choosing the ends of monetary policy on the fly. Next year, I have at least two and possibly three books coming in. The first one is about common <laughs> I'm good barely capitalism. able to get three, three podcasts out. You're writing three books? They've been a long time in the coming, and they just all happen to come out together. Okay. The first one's about common good capitalism. And that's going to be published by Catholic University of America Press. Uh, the second book is about the political economy of medieval Europe, focusing on the high Middle Ages. That's going to be published by University of Michigan Press. And the third one, which I hope happens, that one's not set in stone yet. This is actually a popular book, not a scholarly book. I'm taking a collection of my articles that I wrote for the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, all on the theme of libertarianism and why I think that libertarianism is the authentic inheritor of the American political tradition, putting those together into a coherent narrative and publishing it as a book. So I know a lot of people are sometimes skeptical of books that were just a bunch of op-eds, but these are all related to each other. It's not like 30 essays that just happen to be stapled together. So it's going to work, and I'm optimistic the project is going to make a splash. Hey, it's worked for George Will. Why not you? <laughs> <laughs> I do not write as well as George Will. <laughs> Who? Very few people do. Um, but we're uh, we're thankful that you're here, and I do enjoy following you on Facebook. I think one of the books, I was like, can I write the children's book? Which was a great joke, but... Uh, <laughs> the political economy of medieval Europe. I was like, I want to do the kids version. Um, but anyway, we'll work something out. Let's, I'll do, I'll have uh, squish do this, the sketches. All right, Alex Salter. Thanks so much for joining us here. Congrats on your success. It's very exciting and uh, just a great guy. Great follow and make sure you read his writings. Thank you so much for being here. God bless you, Chris. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We really do appreciate your time. And if you got something out of this, the best thing you can do is share it with your friends and family. That is how you support every writer, podcaster, uh, any creative that you like. Share their work and tell people to join. That's the best way to promote them. Thanks so much, and we will see you again next time.